Well, good morning. I trust that everyone had a great Thanksgiving. If you have a Bible, you can turn to Luke chapter 2. That's where we will be this morning as we begin these next several Sundays walking through Advent all the way through Epiphany in January. Luke 2, start with me in verse 21. On the eighth day, when it was time to circumcise the child, he was named Jesus, the name the angel had given him before he was conceived. When the time came for the purification rites required by the law of Moses, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. Now, when we read that, we think, man, that's some strange rituals, uh, but they're really about what happens when heaven invades earth. Circumcision was a picture of being in a covenant relationship with God. Being given a name happened in the temple because it means I have an, an identity before God. And being consecrated to the Lord means I've been given a purpose from God. And the offering of a sacrifice happened in the temple as a picture of being forgiven by God. And so it's no accident or coincidence that many of the century, for many centuries, acts like these took place in the temple because the temple is the place where heaven was invading earth. And when heaven invades earth, amazing things happen. Sin is forgiven. People get purified. Nobody's become somebody's. People get a name. Outcasts enter into a covenant relationship with God and human lives uh, are given divine purpose. So when Mary and Joseph are in the temple courts with their baby Jesus, uh, they have done these things. They, they get approached by a man, and we're gonna pick up the story in Luke 2.25, named Simeon. Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel and the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. And the child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. And then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, this child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. Now, um, Simeon, this kind of a strange, mysterious character, uh, he is uh, literally waiting to die, waiting for God to fulfill the promise that he's gonna get to see the Messiah, to get to see the one that is being sent to save the world. Um, you can imagine like, Mary and Joseph, you know, new parents, got this new baby, and they go in, they do the, the, the deals of consecration and dedicating him to the Lord, and uh, here's this odd, strange dude in there. Um, 
And it just says that he was waiting. Um, so what do you do with your life when you're waiting for a baby to be born? Well, Simeon didn't lead a movement. He didn't form a community. He didn't build a resume. He didn't go and accomplish a bunch of things, at least not that we're told. He literally watched and prayed. He was doing something awesome that even he may not have understood because in his waiting, he was keeping hope alive. It's as if Simeon was saying, I believe God is doing something so amazing, so wonderful in the world, and, and I want to see it, and I believe there's something tremendous going on, and God is the one behind it, and I'm going to watch it. I'm going to wait for it. And he, in some ways, is longing to participate in the movement and the work of God, and so we would say that that is waiting because it's about God's kingdom, not ours. We're not in control, which we have to remind ourselves of that quite often. And so we're all literally in the waiting business. Some do that pretty well, and most of us don't. But there's this call of God to remain faithful and patient even when we don't or do not have what we want yet. The psalmist tells us repeatedly, I waited patiently for the Lord. So the big question for us today is not, have I gotten everything I'm waiting for? The big question is, what kind of person am I becoming while I wait? Will I wait with patience and faithfulness? Will I wait on the Lord? Now, I don't know what you're waiting for, but I believe I do know that we're all waiting for something. Maybe you're waiting for somebody to love you. Maybe you're waiting for someone for you to love. Maybe you're waiting for a romantic relationship. Maybe you're waiting for clarity about your life's direction. Maybe you're waiting for a job to be able to support your family. Maybe you're waiting for, waiting for a wandering child to come back and to come home. Maybe you're waiting for your deep anxiety to go away. Maybe you're waiting for the economy to come back, your financial life to bounce back, or for love to heal a marriage that's broken, or a situation that is absolutely aching your heart and soul that you don't see hope in. Questions come to your mind, how long will you have to wait? What matters ultimately is who I become while I'm waiting. What matters is who I become while, I wait, while I'm waiting and that I wait with poise and patience and don't become bitter or selfish as I wait on the Lord. Now, we don't know how many months, we don't know how many years, how many decades Simeon waited. What if he had given up on his hope? What if he had just decided it's not worth waiting this thing's never going to happen. I'm, I'm making a fool out of myself. Well, I think we could say that he would have missed the moment for which he was created. And he didn't give up. He kept waiting until one day Mary and Joseph are coming out of the temple with a baby and he asked to see the baby. Now, there's nothing like being new parents and some creepy old man wanting to come hold your new baby. We won't go any further with that. Simeon, it says, took Jesus in his arms and he knew, he knew who Jesus was. Now, we don't know how he knew. He just knew. 
And this is what Simeon let come out of his cord. Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you now can dismiss your servant in peace for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all people, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. And then he hands the baby back to Mary and Joseph and he blesses them. And it just says the child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. Now you as new parents, if you've been new parents, you know that it's a powerful moment when people see your child maybe for the first time and they comment, they talk about how beautiful, how precious and how awesome and how this and how that. And, but this guy doesn't say any of that. He literally holds the baby up and says, okay, God, you can kill me now. I'm ready to die. I've seen the baby. Now, we're not talking about sweet baby Jesus and Ricky Bobby. <laughs> but just a glimpse of these two people's baby is what he's been waiting for his whole life. Now, you can imagine Mary and Joseph are bursting with joy. <clears throat> and then Simeon makes this odd statement to her. This child is destined to cause the falling and the rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword is going to pierce your own soul too, Mary. I mean, don't you want to know that while your child is just coming to the world and helpless that they're going to have enemies, people are going to cause problems and that his life is going to devastate you as his mother. Oh, by the way, as soon as he finishes saying all that, Simeon hands the baby back and says, okay, got to run, have a good life. I mean, that's the last we ever see or hear anything of Simeon. And it's a strange song that he sings, that this child is the child of hope for the world. He's what Simeon has been waiting for his whole life, but he's going to be spoken against. In other words, there are going to be people that are going to oppose your son. People that are going to resist him. Matter of fact, some still do. There's great pain coming to your life, Mary. And by the way, that's pointing to the day where Mary will watch her son on a cross be crucified and a, and a sword be put through his side. And the same as the piercing of that sword through Jesus' side, Mary is going to be pierced in her heart and her soul as she thinks about his life and watches him die. Now, no sooner does Simeon walk away than there's this beautiful, strange, odd, amazing song from another <laughs> character in the story, and it's a woman named Anna. We pick up her in Luke 2.36. It says, there was also a prophet Anna, the daughter of Penuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was very old. I don't know why they need, found the need to say that. No woman wants to be characterized as old particularly very old, so we're just going to rebuke him right there. She had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage and then was a widow until she was 84. She never left the temple but worshiped night and day, fasting and praying. Coming up to them at that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. Anna is a part of the fellowship of those who wait. Now, as Jesus grows up, there's this strange connection 
between Jesus and the temple that is gonna run very deep. The only time we see Jesus as a boy, his parents have been to Jerusalem and they leave and he somehow mysteriously stays behind and after three days journey, they realize, wait a minute, where's Jesus? Now, I don't know about you, but I, with some of my kids, I'm thinking I've been three days without him, I might leave him. <laughs> but they go back and Mary finds him in the temple and she says, why have you treated us like this? And Jesus looks at her kind of incredulously in like Luke 2, 49 and says, why are you searching for me? Don't you know I have to be about my father's house at the temple? Because that's where heaven was invading earth. Somehow his work and the work of the temple are very closely connected. Now there's something else that we need to know about the temple in Jesus's day. The temple was under Roman occupation, so it was under Roman rule. And the Jews believed that it had fallen into the wrong hands. The temple wasn't just a place of worship, it was also the center of Jerusalem's banking system. For example, in that day, there weren't nearly the separations of religion and government and finance like there is in our day. The temple was literally the place where the records of debts were kept by Rome. And they could use those records to claim your land if you could not pay your debt. And so if you were an Israelite and you couldn't pay your debt, you probably would become homeless and a peasant. Now the Israelites despised that the temple was being used to give power to their enemy, but also as it being used as the place where the financial well-being of Rome was housed. And sometimes there would be little insurrections that happened and rebels would seize control of the temple for a while. And the first thing they would do is they would burn the records of those debts in the temple, because to them it was like the temple had been completely turned upside down, like earth had invaded heaven. And so they would take and they would burn the record of their debts. So some of you just got an idea, so tomorrow you wanna to go to your bank. <laughs> Jesus began to, to say and do extraordinary things in the temple. He said, I tell you that no one Excuse me, he says, I tell you that one greater than the temple is here. Now, no human being, no rabbi, no sane person would have ever said anything like that, but Jesus said it. Jesus said, I'm able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. Now, that's a weird thing to say. And he said, it, but after the resurrection, his disciples understood he was really talking about himself. He was crucified and resurrected in three days, but the language to use was tear down the temple, which is staggering. Now, Jesus is talking and acting as if the whole idea of the temple was to point to him. He's talking as if everything the temple was a picture of was actually coming true now that he had arrived on earth. He's claiming that in his own person, in his own life, in his own teachings, in his little community, in his body, heaven had invaded earth. Now remember, what happens when heaven invades earth? Well, sins get forgiven. Outcasts get taken into a covenant relationship. Nobodies become somebodies. The poor in spirit get blessed. People get identities. Simon gets renamed Peter. Saul gets renamed Paul. 
The human beings receive a divine mission to go into the world and tell the good news story of Jesus. And so Jesus says it's all happening now and he is the epicenter. Heaven is overlapping earth. Heaven is invading earth. Heaven is turning earth upside down. People can receive forgiveness of sin because Jesus went to the cross. His body was pierced by a sword. He died for our forgiveness. You can make him the forgiver and the leader of your life and then heaven can invade earth right there in you, right there through you. Now, there's nobody ever, there's never been anybody like Jesus. And so when Mary and Joseph entered the temple, they thought they were entering the house of God, but it turns out that they were actually taking God home with them. And it turns out that their home would be the house of God. The same is true with us today. Heaven invading earth. And the temple was a picture of that, but only a picture. And now really, concretely, actually, as if it was coming true with Jesus, Jesus is heaven invading earth. And he says that in a way that is unforgettable for anybody in this day, because that would have been blasphemous. But it's gonna change not only their life, it's ultimately gonna change our life because the invasion of earth by heaven doesn't stop with Jesus, it only begins. It happens in his life and his teachings, it happens on the cross, it happens in the resurrection, it happened at Pentecost, and people invite Jesus into their homes and into their lives, and heaven starts invading earth through regular people. Now, heaven is invading earth, not through the temple, not even just through Jesus, but through Jesus and his body, the church. And so Paul says, you yourselves are the temple of God. Now, we can understand a little better about 1 Corinthians 6 when he says, we're the temple of the living God because God wants heaven to invade earth through us. God wants his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven through you and I. And he gives us the power to do that through the Holy Spirit. So Jesus is heaven invading earth. And when we invite Jesus to make his home in us, then when we volunteer to help someone, when we take care of a left out child, we show a kid how to read who can't read because people matter. When we pray for somebody who's in spiritual turmoil, when we confess holding a grudge against somebody and we reconcile with them because Jesus died on the cross, when we get an idea to be generous with our money and we actually are generous with our money, when we take time to look somebody in the eye and love them, when we have hard conversations with people because they're stuck in sin and they're destroying themselves and the people around them, when we actually really truly love people and we don't, we don't just think about, oh, I should do that, and we don't do it. We actually put it into practice. Jesus said if we give a cup of cold water in Jesus' name, we don't lose our place in the kingdom. That means that, that heaven is invading earth through our actions of obedience because we love God, we love other people. When you wait, even though you don't have what you want yet, but you wait with patience and joyfulness and unselfish love, we become the temple of God. We are the portal where heaven is invading earth. 
And if we keep doing that, like Simeon, like Anna, our whole long life, then we're going to have a song worth singing. I love these words from Lewis Smeads, who says, waiting is our destiny. As creatures who cannot by themselves bring about what they hope for, we wait in the darkness for a flame we cannot light. We wait in fear for a happy ending that we cannot write. We wait for a not yet that feels like a not ever. I mean, how do you do waiting? How do you do waiting? Isn't that among the most painful things is when you have to wait? Waiting is the hardest work of hope. God himself assures us over and over again that it's okay to wait. Psalm 37, seven, the psalmist says, be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Well, it's one thing to wait, but to wait patiently where you can't twiddle your thumbs and honk the horn. I mean, think about it. God comes to Abraham. Abraham is 75 years old and says, guess what, dude? You're gonna become a father. You'll be the ancestor of a great nation. Now, it's not gonna happen today or tomorrow, but it's gonna happen. 75 years old, you're told you're about to become a parent, and then you wait 24 more years. I mean, that's how long Abraham had to wait. God told Israel, his people, that they would be a great nation, and he, they would be able to leave slavery because that's all they'd ever known was slavery. They had to wait 400 years. God tells Moses he's gonna lead the people out of Egypt, and he's gonna, he's gonna lead them to the promised land. 40 years they wandered. And when the Messiah finally comes, he's only recognized by a few people. He wasn't at all what they thought they were waiting for. In fact, he was only recognized by those who were literally waiting for him. So the Messiah came. Jesus lived and taught and his disciples kept waiting for him to bring the kingdom the way they wanted, the way they expected. They wanted him to right all the wrongs, but he was crucified. And then he comes back to life and he spends time with him and then he's getting ready to sin. And so one of them looks at him and says, hey, are you gonna restore the kingdom? Read into that. Are you ready to kick Rome out? Are you ready to give it back to us and let us take over and run this city? And Jesus says, I got one more command for you. I want you to go to Jerusalem and I want you to wait. And so they did. And they waited in the upper room and then the Holy Spirit came. But they had to wait. And I don't know about you, but finding the kind of patience to wait on the work of God and the will of God isn't easy work. It doesn't mean that all the times of waiting is over for the human race. In Romans 8, Paul says this, we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly while we wait for adoption, the redemption of our bodies, for in hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what is seen? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. 
until we all find ourselves waiting for things on our heart and mind today and for future things. We wait and we wait. And Scripture keeps telling us to wait on the Lord. Now the obvious question is why? Why does God make us wait? Why does God make us wait? Um, I don't know about you, but like, you know, Thanksgiving dinner and, and other times, our, our six-year-old Hattie, th there's one thing that she likes to eat, and that's mashed potatoes. Now, she doesn't care about anything else on the table. She's mashed potatoes. And she sees the mashed potatoes ready. She's ready to eat. And we're like, hey, there's other stuff. There's other people. You, you have to wait. Well, she looks at you with the you can eat doo-doo and die look. Six years old. Did you, anybody have a kid like that? Some of you have a spouse like that, but don't, don't point. Don't point. Don't point. And, and I'm like, you're like, hey, you, you got to wait. I don't want to wait. Well, I know, but you're going to wait. And then she throws a temper, you know, throws a princess tantrum. And she keeps throwing it until she gets her way. And then you pray. You know, you get everybody to the table and you pray. And while you're praying, she's reaching for the spoon in the mashed potatoes. Now, is, is that not us? I mean, is that not us? Somebody says, hey, you got to wait. I don't want to wait. I want it now. I wanted it yesterday. I don't understand all of that. And, and I've put this up on the screen for you. It, but I want you to think through this with me. <clears throat> what God does in us while we wait is as important as what it is we're waiting for. What God does in us while we wait is as important as what it is we're waiting for. Paul says while we're waiting for God to set everything right, we suffer. But suffering produces perseverance. And perseverance produces character. And character produces hope. And listen, people without hope despair and they're ready to not just die, but to die now by any means because they don't see the sun coming up tomorrow. What that means is that biblically, waiting is not just something we have to do until we get what we want. Waiting is part of the process of becoming what God wants us to be. So have you ever thought about this? that there is a healthy, better version of ourselves that we're not going to create in and of ourselves. It's going to be the work of God because he created us with things in his mind that we would be and do. Things that he would gift us for, places he would call us. And when we decide that we want to fashion ourselves in our own image, we walk out of the purposes of which he has called us to be. And something about waiting and not letting it send us into exasperation, but trusting the process. I mean, have you noticed how everything's a process? And we don't like processes? Now, I want to talk about what it means to wait on the Lord. But I think we need to say what biblical waiting is not first. Biblical waiting is not passive waiting around for something or someone to come along that will allow you to escape your trouble. People sometimes will say, hey, I'm just waiting on the Lord. That's kind of like a cliche. 
But most people are just using that as an excuse not to face up to reality, to take appropriate action, or to own up to the responsibility of what they need to own up to. That is not what waiting on the Lord is. Biblical waiting is not passive. It's not a way to evade unpleasant realities. Waiting on the Lord is a confident, disciplined, expectant, active, sometimes, usually, most times in my life, painful clinging to God. Waiting on the Lord is the continual daily decision to say, God, I am frustrated as I can be, but I'm going to trust you and I'm going to obey you even though the circumstances of my life are not what I hope they would be, what I want them to be, or what I would have written for them to be. And they may never turn out that way. Because see, waiting on the Lord requires a heart that is willing to trust. Let me just kind of close with some things that I think will take for us to get that trusting heart to wait on the Lord. I think the first is, is patient trust. Now I realize that those two words, you want to just burn the house down. <laughs> Can I trust that God has good reasons for telling me to wait? Yes. Can I trust that God has good reasons for me to wait? Um, you, you've probably had something like this happen in your house. We, uh, you know, in the kitchen, something will, will fall or get dropped or whatever, and, and it's glass, it'll shatter, and it'll go everywhere. And, and what happens when kids hear something shatter or, or, or break? They come running. And you're like, whoa, stop. Don't come in here. Or, or they look at you like you have six heads and you're a moron. Well, I'm coming in there to see what just broke. And like, if you walk in here, you're going to cut your foot. Well, I don't care. I'm God. And, and, you know, they, they, they'll come running through the kitchen. Then you start hearing the screams and, and then you pick them up and you put them on the counter and they get glass all on their feet. Why? Because they wouldn't do what? They wouldn't wait. They wouldn't trust that there was a situation and the circumstances that they couldn't fathom, they couldn't understand the dangers of, and they wanted to rush in and do what they wanted to do. Does that sound anything like us as adults? Of course it does. And patient trust says, I'm going to have to trust that God knows what he's doing. I also have to remember that it's probably going to look different to God because he views things from eternity and a bigger perspective. 2 Peter 3, 8 and 9 says it this way, but do not ignore this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years are like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise as some think of slowness, but is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. God has a perspective that his redemptive work is going to reach into the lives of people for them to see from a different perspective and understand that not only is God real and there, but he cares as opposed to the way God has been characterized as being capricious and against us or not caring. God's Heart is, is that we come to him, that we learn to trust him, and that we wait on his work because his perspective is different. Now, I would say that most all of us want God's resources, but we don't want his timing. We forget his work in us while we wait, which is an important, which as what we're waiting for. Waiting means I must trust that God knows what he's doing. 
Now, many of you, like me, love Henry Nouwen, and you love his books. He wrote one called Sabbatical Journeys, and he writes about some friends of his who were literally trapeze artists, and they worked in the circus. And these people had meant a great deal in his life. They were called, the, <clears throat> excuse me, the Flying Rudellas. The one thing that they told Henry Nouwen that stuck with him the most is that there's a very special relationship between the flyer on the trapeze and the catcher on the trapeze. As you might imagine, this relationship is important, especially to the flyer. When the flyer is swinging high above the crowd on the trapeze, the moment comes when he must let go. He arcs out into the air and his job is to remain as still as possible and to wait for the strong hands of the catcher to pluck him out of the air. The trapeze artist told Nowen, the flyer must never try to catch the catcher. The flyer must never try to catch the catcher. The flyer must wait in absolute trust that the catcher will catch him. But he must wait. Now, I don't know about you, but that almost sounds like jumping out of a perfectly good airplane. But you can't pull the chute too soon, nor can you pull the chute, what? Too late. And, and the idea of, of trusting someone swinging in a different direction on a different trapeze, that you are just going to let yourself go and remain still, trusting in the hands of the catcher to catch you in the right way. Boy, that sounds like the good news, doesn't it? which we would call the scary news because we have all these questions. Well, what if God doesn't catch me? What if God doesn't want to catch me? What if God doesn't want to hold on to me? What if God, what if, what if God fails? What if God doesn't do this? What, 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 what? Isn't that about the way we handle most things in our life? Um, some in this room are in a vulnerable moment right now. You probably have let go or are in the process of letting go what it is God has called you to let go of. But right now you can't feel God's hands catching you yet. And you want to start flailing around and scrambling and clawing and grabbing and doing everything you can the question is, is can we wait in absolute trust? Can we wait patiently for God to work what God's gonna work in us so that the situation and the circumstances aren't wasted by our clutching and grabbing our own way and trusting that God has something bigger? Oh, that's a painful place. Not only are we called to patiently trust, but we have to patiently trust with confident humility. Isaiah wrote these words that the fruit of righteousness will be peace. The fruit of righteousness will be peace. The effect of righteousness will be quietness and confidence forever. The result of righteousness, the prophet says, will be these two character qualities, confidence, the conviction that God is able and fearless towards the future, but also a quietness where it's not chaotic, 
Where even though we're not in control of the circumstances and the things that are going on around us, we find ourselves trusting that he has not abandoned us and that he is still sitting on the throne. Waiting is something by its nature that only really the humble can do, or at least in my life, only the humble can do. Because I don't tend to be very humble. Or at least that the humble can do with grace. To wait for something is to recognize I am not in control. Would you like to repeat after me today? (laughs) We are not calling the shots. The timing is not up to us. Now in our society, there's a direct correlation between status and waiting. The higher your status, the less you have to wait. Waiting reminds us though that we're not in charge. We are the creature, not the creator. But we're just not waiting around. We're waiting on God, the God that catches, the God that loves, the God is for, the God who redeems, the God who invaded earth. And God's gonna do something in us while we wait. Therefore, we can trust God's wisdom and his timing. We can wait with confidence. The single most important activity for people waiting on God is prayer. Prayer is the primary form that waiting on God takes. It's prayer that allows creatures, humbled human beings, to wait without worry. Now, you, like me, have had a night where you spent literally a reckless, sleepless night in your bed or pacing the floor because your mind was just getting thoughts of every kind of bad thing that could ever happen in your life and how everything was gonna fall apart and everything was going this way and everything was going that way. And you've had all these frantic voices inside of you. And there was a little semblance of truth in some of it, but all you could see was bad, 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 bad. But none of those words and none of those situations led you to a peaceful, quiet life. They led you to a reckless abandon of desperation where frantic and worry and chaos reigned. Now, if you remember Mark chapter four, Jesus and his friends are in a boat during a storm and Jesus has gone to take a nap. And the disciples are so frantic that they wake him and they ask him a question. Don't you care that we're going to die? (laughs) Jesus basically in layman's terms says, hey, pipe down, shut up, calm down, it's okay. I was asleep, you should have joined me in sleeping. They chose a life preserver and he chose a pillow. But isn't that kind of the way it works out in our life? We're always looking for the next life preserver and Jesus says what you need is a pillow. The story in Mark 4 is an example of one aspect of life of something God probably has never experienced. I know we think God has experienced everything, but listen, I don't think God's ever experienced being frantic. I don't think God has ever been in a hurry. Or at least not in my life, he's never been in a hurry. (laughs) I need you now or I'm going to die. That was three weeks ago. 
Now, God is never early. God is never late. He's always right on time. But I would debate what right on time means. God is never frantic. God never panics. God is never in a hurry. Now, that gets irritating to you and I because we're in a hurry. But God never is. And I think the more we know his voice, the more we know and recognize his voice, not that it's easy, but it becomes easier to go, okay, okay, I hear his voice. And by the way, when you hear frantic voices in your head, that cannot be God because nothing about God is frantic. Jesus said, my sheep know my voice. It's the voice of the shepherd who cares for the sheep. We wait with confident humility. We can be confident because God is leading us. We express humility because we are not in charge. We have to wait. And that leads to this last thing, that waiting on the Lord requires inextinguishable hope. For in hope we were saved. Hope that is seen, Paul wrote, is not really hope because you don't hope for what's seen. In other words, if I already had it, I wouldn't have to hope for it. But if we hope for what we do not see, what we cry out for and hunger for and thirst for, it says we haven't yet experienced it, but we long for it. And so we do so with patience. Scripture says, Scripture says that even the young will faint and be weary and they will get tired, but God won't. And God will not turn frantic in desperation because he's already paid the price. He's already redeemed. He's already reminded us he is reliably there. There may be a limit to the strength of the strongest human. And I would say the limit to the strength of the strongest human has a correlation with our ability to wait and to trust on the work of God. Because when we become desperate and we begin flailing our arms and fighting, we attempt to catch the catcher. I don't know if you've ever been a lifeguard. One of the most difficult things of a rescue is to get the person to stop fighting you because they not only put their life in danger, they put your life in danger. And when you're pulling someone off the bottom of a pool floor, or if you're pulling them out of the ocean with undercurrents and riptides that are pulling you out, to get them to relax and to trust that their body will go up Usually they get in trouble because they fight and the more they fight, they go down. But you only have a limited amount of breath. And if they do get their head above water, you take the three seconds that you have to say, please stop fighting, I will get you to safety. But how easy is it for someone that is in that kind of frantic panic 
to trust a voice that says, I will get you to safety. There are people that have no rescuer sometimes, but there are also a high number of people who die of drowning because they refuse to listen to the voice of the one that knows how to save them. And God says, wait, because I'm working something in you that's bigger than what you're waiting for. And oh my goodness, that's hard. Because that means I've got to resign the position as CEO of my life and trust that he knows a little bit more than I do. So we're going to go to communion today and finish in worship. This is what I want to ask. When you, look at the, when you look at the bread and the cup, it's a reminder that everything has been done, okay? Now, I know that's offensive. When, when somebody says, hey, everything's done, well, can I do something? Can I bring something? Well, yeah, you can bring your broken life and trust me. Uh, no, I want to do something. Okay, surrender. No, 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 I want to do something. Well, give up. No, I, I want to do something. Does that sound familiar? Well, what are we going to do? We're going to lay ourselves before the God who loves us and say, only you can save. And I'm going to wait for that. I mean, can you imagine Simeon realizing that, that he has now seen the one that is going to come and lay his life down. He doesn't even ask to wait to see Jesus die on the cross and pay for the debt of sin. He just sees that baby and he knows that that's the fulfillment of the promise. And he's like, I'm ready to die. I'm ready. You can dismiss me now, God. And Anna, this lady who's had a bitter, bitter experience of her life and she's lived all these years as a widow scraping by probably, but yet she spent her whole life in the temple fasting and praying. Why? Because she's waiting on the deliverance of the Lord. Wow. I'm not good sometimes waiting like three seconds. And sometimes we come to the table of God and God's like, I, I, just, just wait and let me, and, and we're like, no, no, I want the mashed potatoes now. Mashed potatoes now. God says, just wait. I'm working something that's going to pay bigger dividends than what you can fathom. Oh, it's so hard. I get it. It's hard. And so when you go to the table today, could, could you just think about where you are with waiting on God in the situation that you long for? And, and I'm not saying your situation's easy because it's not. But I'm saying God's, God's wanting to form within us because with Christ to be formed within us, who knows what God will do as he invades earth with heaven. Let's pray. Lord, we, uh, we just lay ourselves before you this morning. <clears throat> God, we, we know deep within our hearts and minds that you are the ones with the words of eternal life and you are the one that changes in everything about our life. And we know that you're at work, but Lord, sometimes we... We kind of get some misplaced things and trusting's hard and Lord, we've been hurt and we've been let down by people and so we assign human characteristics to you and yet, Lord, you love us anyway. And so, Lord, God, would you in your graciousness meet us here today. And Father, could we see the bigger purpose of what you're forming within us as we wait?
not just wait, but wait patiently with hope that you are working out for our good. Lord, we rejoice in the sacrifice of Jesus. And Lord, we trust that you are moving within us so that we can be earth invaders, God, with the good news of Jesus. And so, Lord, may hope rise. May hope rise today. In the name of Jesus, amen.